You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Uh, let's just start, and I'll introduce myself. My name is John Horgan. I'm a science journalist. I also teach at Stevens Institute of Technology here in Hoboken, and um, I've been talking about science and philosophy and related stuff uh, here on Blogging Heads TV for a really long time. And now I've got this show that's dedicated to uh, the mind-body problem. And with me today is um, somebody who really knows a lot about the mind-body problem, has been thinking about it a lot. So I'm really looking forward uh, to what he has to say. Um, Eric Hole. By the way, is that how you pronounce your last name? I was just going to say, very common, but it's actually Howell. And it could be either. It's not, it's not clear from the spelling. Okay, Howell. Anyway, I'm going to call you Eric. And um, so we're going to get into Eric's uh, background a little bit. But I wanted to start off uh, with a hard question. Uh, so can you define – so my this podcast I do is called – the, it's called mind-body problems with an S. I wonder if you could start just by defining the mind-body problem for us. Yeah, I, I think that the mind-body problem can best be described as a problem of reconciliation. So how do you bring together these two seemingly very disparate things, one of which is body, and by that it's often taken to mean not just our body, although it certainly does mean our body, but also sort of like the body of the universe in the set of relationships of physics, right? So all clocks, you know, gears in a clock ticking away is in a sense body, right? And then mind, we, we all kind of see our own minds from the inside. We're probably the thing we're most familiar with in a certain sense. Um, and But mind seems very unlike things that have body, things that have extension. They, it seems like we've got this stream of consciousness. It's filled with these contents and so on. And somehow, you know, we know that they have to be related in some sort of fundamental way. But I think the problem is mostly figuring out how they're related. And people have had various kind of guesses, but I don't think that there is sort of one well-accepted known answer. And certainly the whole scientific study of consciousness that's presumably, hopefully, trying to figure that out. Right. Well, we're going to get into that. So one thing that makes your, you know, you're, you're just this young guy, but already your career has gone in a really interesting direction. Um, so I just want to point out that uh, the reason we're talking right now is that you have, you just wrote a novel. It just came out, I think. Yeah. And you have, the, that's the advanced reader's copy too. I'm so glad you have it. Here's the the thing, they did a really nice job of it. Uh, yeah. Very and, happy. Um, and it's, I, I'll, let me just say, uh, so I don't forget to say it later, that I love this book. I, I feel like, I'm sure it's going to have a wide audience, but I feel like I'm the perfect audience for this because <laughs> I'm obsessed with the mind-body problem, with the, you know, the, the sort of philosophical uh, and scientific attempts to understand consciousness and how it emerges from matter. Um, and, you know, this book sort of covers so much intellectual territory related to the uh, mind-body problem, but it's also a thriller. It's also this really exciting 
mystery. So it's sort of a, it's, it's a mystery in a couple of different senses. It's a mystery in the traditional sense of like something bad happens and, and people in, in the novel are trying to solve it, but it's also about the mystery of consciousness, the mind body problem. And you, you bring it all together in this really amazing way. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say that having said that, and also the, the, the question of um, how science and literature and philosophy can all sort of come together in illuminating the mind-body problem is something I'm really interested in. But before we get into that, I wonder if you can just give us a little bit of your background. I'm really curious, first of all, why neuroscience? How did you end up becoming a neuroscientist? Well, I grew up in my mother's independent bookstore on the East Coast. And when you grow up in a bookstore, the thing you want to be most of all is a writer. You think that uh, authors are the white hut center of the culture, uh, which, you know, perhaps a, perhaps a bit of a disillusionment, you know, in, in going out into the rest of the world when I was young. But I felt that way very much so. So, of course, I wanted to be a writer. And um, I, I knew early on the type of writer I wanted to be, which was somebody, and, and I particularly mean a fiction writer as well. I mean, that was always my, my big dream. Um, but, you know, the thing that happens, you realize well, you're going to need something to write about, right? And all the writers that I really liked weren't people who just went and immediately got their MFA and then, or, or immediately got their undergraduate in creative writing, then went on to get their MFA and then wrote their first book when they were 25. I liked like Melville getting stranded, you know, on an island and then coming up with Taipei or Joan Didion finding the counterculture, you know, or, or, or Mailer going into the army or something. Those people were my heroes when I was a teenager. But of course, you know, I, I, I didn't want to shoot anybody. I get seasick and uh, I couldn't have found the counterculture, you know, if you had paid me to find it. So um, but I did find science. I found the nonfiction section of the, of the store, and I was just gobbling it up as a teenager, even though I was not doing very well in high school. And I realized that what I wanted to read more than almost anything was a novel about science. And you might say, well, isn't there a science fiction section right there? And there is, and I love science fiction. But I wanted it to be about the process of science. I wanted it to be about, like, grappling with fundamental theories that can change your entire ontology of the world and what that means to be human, but also about science in its humanness and its kind of fallibility. And so I realized very abstractly that that was maybe something that I'd be capable of producing given what, what my sort of abilities. I was like, okay, I, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at and maybe I can do that. And at the same time, I find, found out about this hard problem of, of consciousness um, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and also so interesting to me because as a writer, consciousness is kind of like the water in which you swim very naturally, right? You never, there's no mystery of consciousness to an author, right? They're kind of immediately granted access to all their characters' consciousnesses, right? Um, and so I realized that maybe if we, if I did a novel that was kind of set at the intersection, it would kind of place literature and science on an even footing and I could kind of have them fight it out. And that was very early on. And so kind of in a weird method acting way, I decided to go very, very much into neuroscience as much as possible. I got my undergrad in it. I ended up getting accepted to a very good PhD program in neuroscience where I worked with what, who was one of the people who was probably 
the leading researcher in consciousness, or at least the founder of one of the leading theories, um, which was Giulio Cianoni. And I ended up getting my PhD working with him and helping develop, you know, actually working on the very front lines of consciousness research, which I was very lucky to do. And it was immensely intellectually informed, uh, informative to, for me. And, uh, and then the whole time I was kind of dwelling about this book and this idea for this book and working on it, you know, in secret and so on. And, um, and, and continuing to write. And then, you know, I've, I've, I've had some kind of career success within science itself. I, it, it just happens to be something that I turned out to be, like, not bad at. Um, and, and so I've got various scientific interests. And I actually have a day job working as a research scientist. L luckily, I don't have to teach students. Uh, so I'm just a pure research scientist. And that also gives me time to write, and, you know, and so on on the side. Um, so is, is the neuroscience part of your life still sort of subsidiary to the fiction writing side of your life or has, it sounds the way you described it, it sounds like neuroscience was sort of your, you know, you wanted to get some experience under your belt. So you'd have this rich material for your fiction. Do you still see it at, that way? Or is the neuroscience become a really important end in itself? Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly, it's become a very important end in and of itself. I mean, science in general is a huge part of my life. I will probably never stop doing science. I'm very cyclical in how I work. So, you know, sometimes I'll spend months just doing writing, and then I'll do six months of pure science where I, I don't even, like, read a novel, right? I'm just completely in the realm of science, and then I kind of dive back out of it. And that's really the way I've been functioning for, for decades. Um, so I use that metaphor to, to, of the, like a method act, I'm kind of like a method actor who's like wandered off set and I keep doing this thing that I was doing in the movie. Um, and I say that both because it's a little bit honest, uh, but also to say that, you know, when I approach this stuff from a literary perspective, I'm very much putting the writing first. But then I leave that phase and then I'm putting the, the science first. So, uh, you know, I, the one reason why I am I'm kind of open about the, the amount of kind of back, uh, the amount of uh, which my background is based on trying to do research for this book is that um, I'll, I'll do another fiction book at some point and it's not just going to be like another neuroscience novel, you know. Right. So, um, but I will, I think, always both write fiction and do basic science. All right. So, um, I first met you uh, 2015. There was a workshop at NYU right across the river from me on this thing called integrated information theory, which I had been hearing about for a while. I, I've known Christoph Koch for a really long time, since like, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when I started writing about uh, consciousness. Christoph Koch, the, the great neuroscientist, who was a sidekick of... Um, of uh, Francis Crick, and um, and I, you know, what I'd heard about integrated information theory made me sort of go, "What the hell, man? This sounds crazy." And but I, I had to take it seriously because Christoph took it seriously, and then uh, David Chalmers um, over at NYU uh, organized this workshop along with um, Tononi and uh, and and Koch. So Tononi, I guess, was the originator of in, uh, integrated information theory. And then Christoph became sort of his ally in uh, promoting it. And so I went over there to try to figure out what the hell is this theory really about? 
and I, you were there. I can't remember if you actually presented a paper there. I did. Yeah. Okay. And so then we went out to lunch or something. I, you know, one of the what a one of the great things that I remember about that workshop was that there are all these postdocs, graduate students, there are all these young people who are aspiring uh, neuroscientists and philosophers, especially philosophers, as I recall. And I was sort of getting their ideas about this crazy theory and about consciousness in general. Um, and so I, I just wonder if you can explain what integrated information theory is and tell us whether, I don't know, are you still an advocate of it? Yeah, so let me first explain it So, um, and, and maybe why I was so attracted to it. I mean, I, I basically applied to, what well, maybe I applied to two, but, but I basically my, my hope was just one graduate student, uh, one graduate program in neuroscience, which was to go work with Giulio Tononi. And I, I didn't really care what graduate program it was. It happened to be at the University of Wisconsin, which is a good one, but I, I didn't care at all. I just wanted to work with Giulio because I'd read his, his papers on integrated information theory. And I think the best way to describe the theory to someone is not maybe to go too much into its details, but to talk about what its actual aim is. And the aim is to basically create a mathematical function that takes physical states, states of body, and maps them directly into states of mind, such that it's like an algorithm where you can feed in a physical system in a particular state, like a brain state, ideally, but also, and this is maybe a fun thing about integrated information theory, you can feed in all sorts of stuff, right? You could feed in this conversation right now. And what the algorithm would do is kind of try to appropriately carve up the world such that we are actually partitioned off. And even though we're exchanging information between us, we're not merging into some bigger consciousness. Instead, we each have our own separate consciousness. And it does this by looking at how systems integrate information and looking for these like dense cores of information integration that it claims are separate streams of consciousness. Right. Now, the theory has many, many kind of technical details. It turns out that formal mathematical theories of consciousness of the kind that I'm very attracted to and I think are hopefully the future are very difficult to construct. You run into all sorts of problems when you do it. Um, um, I do not think that IIT is going to end up being correct in the final sense, but I do think that it is historically the first thing that kind of looks the way that we would want a scientific theory of consciousness to look. And it's different than in kind than previous theories that were a lot more about metaphors or a lot more kind of like loosey goosey about exactly how the details of all this stuff were working. And IIT is like, no, here's an equation. And maybe that doesn't turn out to be correct, but I think it's a very wonderful, viable kind of beautiful way for it. And Julio is the first person I think to really do that. Um, so while I don't kind of, you know, buy IIT in full, I was actually on Twitter earlier today kind of defending IIT because I think sometimes there are things that are very viable criticisms about it and that I've been on the record, not just in conversation, but it, I've literally published entire papers about issues around falsifiability and so on. But it also gets criticism that just because it's kind of the big target and because it's so well formalized that it looks like a theory from physics and that's good because it means it's easy to criticize. Theories that aren't well formalized are hard to criticize because there's these shifting jello targets. And so everyone pretends it's like fine where it's like, oh, it's just fame. You know, it's just fame in the brain. You know, oh, it's a big global workspace. 
you know, and then like, what's in the global workspace? Well, it's just whatever's kind of in there. And then I'm going to change my definitions depending on what paper I'm doing and so on. Versus IITs, you know, you know, or like, or, or more perversely, like, here's my thumb, let's measure everything by it. Um, approach. And I found that very attractive. And I do think you're right about the young people coming into consciousness research. I'm certainly part of the first generation of scientists who I've been immensely lucky, just the historical privilege of being able to openly talk about and study consciousness from a young age could never have happened, you know, even 20 years ago, as I'm, as I'm sure you're very well aware, you've been watching this space for a while. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so listen, I want to get back to your book and, and um, fiction versus science, but I'll just tell you what my problems have been with IIT from the start. And I wrote a critical piece for Scientific American on it. One is that at least back in 2015, um, it implied panpsychism. It implied that all of matter, or at least certain kinds of matter, but it's not restricted to biology, are, are imbued with consciousness. Anything that has parts that are exchanging what you might call information. And so it implied that consciousness was there from the start. There was, there was this wonderful um, little exchange during that workshop where somebody was questioning whether um, dark matter would be conscious. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and it, it was it was kind of jokey, but kind of serious as well. And Christoph had a line, you know, somebody was saying, dark matter? No, you know. And Christoph said something like, let's not be baryonic chauvinists. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, okay, panpsychism, I, you know, it seems to me one of the great questions is how you go from an inanimate universe to a universe with life and then a universe with consciousness. Those are deep questions. And I felt like integrated information theory is sort of cheating by saying, well, there's just consciousness there from the start. Um, so that's one problem. And a sort of related problem is I've always had a, I've always had an issue with, um, information-based theories of consciousness. They seem to be a case of begging the question. To my mind, and I've gotten pushback on this, but I'm sticking to my guns. To my mind, the concept of, pre of information, and by the way, I, I actually interviewed Claude Shannon in the late 1980s and asked him uh, about you know, what he thought information theory was. Uh, information presupposes consciousness. It's, it's, you know, information is this thing that is sent from one sentient thing to another sentient thing and can cause some kind of change in that sentient, the, in the receiver. Um, so actually, I think it presupposes not only consciousness, but free will. So it seems to me that, as I said, it's kind of a circular, it's not really explaining consciousness. It's just kind of assuming consciousness. Uh, yeah. But, so, so just to, I'll, I'll briefly address those within the context of the theory. So I think they're both qu quite good points. Right. And I can't speak to panpsychism regard like how, like uh, on it, just on its face, how viable it should be like at all. But there's a big difference between how IIT does panpsychism and how maybe more standard philosophical accounts do panpsychism. And this is that IIT acknowledges this very serious issue, which is that what does system mean? You look at the roots of the word system, it just means I put together. 
this is a system, this is a system, this is a system. Okay, everything's a system. You can partition the world like into all sorts of ways. So panpsychist theory not only has to figure out, you know, how it is the case or that, you know, consciousness is kind of in everything, but also that like it has to not only do that for our brains, but also the joint set that contains both of our brains, right? And then there's a joint set that contains both of our brains and a third person's brain who we've never met. And that contains that and an atom that's orbiting, you know, the, off the rings of Saturn, right? And so on. And this, is, this it, it may seem kind of like a, like, like a small problem, but it turns out to be a huge problem. And what IIT does is it actually does deal with that problem very well. It kind of introduces a very good way of ordering. So it's kind of like, a, it's like an extremely orderly panpsychism where, yes, everything is conscious, but only very particular holes that have very definite boundaries and then they subsume the consciousness of their parts. And then basically what you end up with is a lot of big consciousnesses walking all, along and then a bunch of conscious dust that's kind of out there. But it's just dust. It, it, you could use the word consciousness, but it's barely anything. That doesn't necessarily address the, the claim, but I do think that that's an example of how it's like much better than, you know, Bertrand Russell kind of being like, maybe, maybe it's kind of the stuff behind the laws, right? Or something like that, which is like, well, what about the stuff that's grouped together behind the stuff behind the laws and so on? Um, and that's just a case of IIT being maybe more elegant than stuff that came before. And then for this information theory um, bit, I definitely agree. The reason why someone like Claude Chan would normally apply, say that information is subjective, is that, um, well, information is all about stuff that doesn't happen. So if you flip a coin, right, and you get a heads, how much information do you have? Well, what did you rule out? You ruled out tails, right? If I roll a die and I get a five, I ruled out one, two, three, four, and six, right? Now, rolling a die gives me more information than flipping a coin. But why? Rolling a die, I got a five. Flipping a coin, I got a heads. They, they're each just one thing. But we're like, no, but that was out of this set of possibilities, right? Which is, you might say, the natural the, a, a set of counterfactuals gives information its uh, its informativeness, and that seems well kind of arbitrary, right? Like, well, like why was it six sides? Maybe you could argue the die could have possibly landed on a very small side, but it's very unlikely, and that should be factored into your calculation, and all the way down, right? Um, what IIT says is that systems that have what are called mechanisms which are things like logic gates, something that you can describe via a truth table or something like a neuron that has an action potential, that they kind of have this natural intrinsic set of counterfactuals. And then the information is generated just kind of inherently by ruling, by ruling out that natural set. Now, I, this was something that is, I do think probably a, an issue in IIT, right? Which is that, well, how do we really rigorously define this sort of intrinsic space of possibilities, right? This is something that philosophers had a damn time doing uh, back when people like Lewis and so on were talking about counterfactual theories of causation and how they were going to work. And pretty soon you're talking about possible worlds and the set of distances among possible worlds and so on. And yet it's very difficult to do. And IIT doesn't spend a lot of time justifying it. What IIT basically does is just say, well, just take the full set of states. Um, and that's the intrinsic. And I, I've never found that very satisfying because, for example, your blank, a counterfactual for your brain is that, like, it's on fire. Presumably, that's not really being ruled out by your contemporary neural activity in any sort of interesting way. Uh, so 
but I, I could be open to someone coming along and saying, no, here's like a pretty good definition of what counts as a natural intrinsic state. And then you're just ruling out those states and generating a certain amount of, of information naturally without an observer. But again, I think that that's a problem that isn't, isn't kind of obviously solved by IIT and its contemporary formalism. Okay. Uh, all right. Thanks. That's a, um, that's a good defense of, uh, of your old mentors, uh, of your old mentors theory. By the way, I just got a, uh, I, I, I become sort of friendly with Rupert Sheldrake, the, the renegade biologist over the last, uh, I met him at a literary, actually I met him a long time ago, but then I met him again at a literary festival, maybe six or seven years ago. And we, we became uh, pals and he just sent me a paper that's coming out or, or just came out in the journal of consciousness studies. The title is, is the sun conscious? And this is inspired directly by integrated information theory. And I, I said, I didn't read the whole paper, but my immediate response was um, if the sun is conscious, can it fear its own mortality? You know, the sun's going to turn into a red giant someday and then shrink down to a, I don't know, brown dwarf or black hole or, you know, it's going to die. I said, can the, can the sun, can the sun worry about its own death? And, and, Rupert wrote back and said, hmm, that's a like an interesting question. And he said, yes, if it's looking out at the other stars and it sees them dying, that's how we know that we're going to die. And so then, yeah, it might have anxiety over its possible non-existence. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that this, so I'm someone who is a huge proponent of kind of like very ambitious, and, and this crops up in the, the novel, The Revelations, where one of the big subplots is you know, the main character kind of being obsessed and almost monomaniacal in trying to come up with a grand theory of consciousness. So I'm a very big proponent of that quest, but the downside to it, right, is that we don't want to end up in, you know, a place where people are maybe... And, and again, it could be very tongue in cheek, right? But but you know, I think that once we get talking about sons being conscious, I can hear funding agencies being like, "What what what are people talking about?" And that's that's again more of a more of a meta concern. And I've had this conversation with other people in the field where we somehow want to have both ambitious theories that maybe do have really crazy consequences, like maybe the sun is conscious, maybe it's just not conscious of very much, right? Or it has a very kind of, it's like a one note, you know, it's just like a one note forever, right? And that that actually could be true, right? It could just be like a one note consciousness forever. That, that, that wouldn't really interfere with the rest of physics substantially, you know? Uh, but, you know, the problem with this field is that, <sighs> We're, 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 we're very ambitious. And so we end up talking about and, and having debates about this stuff. Someone like Hakwan Lau was in the field has, has written a lot about that and is very concerned. And I'm also very concerned about people on the other side who are saying these people are getting too ambitious and shouldn't be making these claims. So I sometimes wonder if we're living in this brief historical period where it's okay to talk about consciousness again, everyone's going to get really crazy and then it'll become not okay to talk about it again. Right. And maybe one thing I wanted to do in the book was just capture this brief kind of historical period in which, okay, we can actually talk about this and then let's kind of see how slightly crazy it gets and maybe how crazy it makes some people. You did capture it. One of the things I love about your book is that I think you've captured, listen, I've been writing about consciousness and tracking this, this field for more than 30 years now. And um, it's never been more exciting 
you know, there was an older version of myself that would have been really mocking what's going on now because it's so kind of wide open and crazy. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of people doing psychedelics. There, 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 um, are papers on psychedelics at the consciousness, uh, conferences, there are papers with, uh, with a lot of mysticism in them. Um, you know, a lot of people are bringing up Buddhism as a kind of, as something worth citing in consciousness studies. So there's a lot of kind of fringy, crazy stuff mixing with the really serious stuff like integrated information uh, theory. And in a way you could disparage it and you'd say, you know, there's no unifying paradigm here. Uh, everybody is just floundering and shooting in the dark but it's exciting. It, it it reminds me of what I've heard science was like back in the 60s um, when it really was wild and crazy. And um, their theories were just sort of flying all over the place. But this, there's this feeling of excitement and discovery. All right. But let me let me give you a question out of this. One of the one of the things that I wonder after reading your book while reading your book is how you reconcile your novelist self with this imagination, you know, just sort of trying different things with your scientist self. My question is, has writing the, this work of fiction, which has so much about consciousness research and, and neuroscience in it, has it affected your intellectual views of consciousness the mind-body problem, and those sorts of things. I'm, I'm going to ask you this again. I'm trying to go somewhere, but I want to just see how you respond to that before I put a point on it. Yes, I, I think it definitely has. Um, you know, in a sense, the 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 trick the trick to a book like this, and it's it's is it can be very difficult. Is that just on the page itself, getting the right mix of the sort of scientific worldview and then maybe the literary or novelistic worldview and that the novelistic worldview is fundamentally a romantic worldview. You know, it's, it's a world where like poetry, what is poetry? I mean, poetry is panpsychism, right? I mean, poetry is when you take panpsychism seriously, right? Like, like the, the, the novelistic romantic view of the world is not only, I think, necessary for writing novels, but another thing that I want to get across here is that it's also probably necessary for science. You know, a lot of the characters have intuitions that they are kind of enacting as they are going, going through this, right? And I don't know if there's ever any real progress in science without someone who, if you knew them personally, would seem somewhat like Captain Ahab. Like, they would seem relatively crazy and their, their want to kind of like, like, you know, it's, it's like this paradox, like, okay, I want to expand the sphere of knowledge. Well, how do you do that? Well, you can't rely on stuff that's already known. So then how do you know that there's anything to expand here, right? It's like, well, I don't, I have an irrational faith-based belief, right? And where does that come from? It probably comes from some sort of deep romantic either historical or genetic influence, right? Um, and that's something, that irreducibility is something that I think a lot more about, uh, that we probably aren't going to reason our way there. I think so. So maybe this is a slightly more meta uh, change in, in what I think about consciousness. 
but not so much that we will reason our way there, but that I can imagine in 10 years or in a hundred years, if in 10 years I'm still alive and it comes out, you know, some, I get to, you know, I'll, I'll basically read the paper and hit myself in the head and go dummy, dummy, dummy. Um, and my dog's trying to get in and go dummy, dummy, dummy. Like I, why didn't I think of this? Right. Um, but you know, I, I, I would say it, it hasn't significantly changed like my thoughts about consciousness, but I'm a bit of an agnostic right now in terms of theory. So, Oh, oh. lovely. So <laughs> lovely. Yes. Love. Okay. Okay. Come on. Go on. Go on. Oh, uh, that was adorable. Well, okay. Here, <laughs> let me see. Let me see. Let me tell you what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Sure. Um, here. So I was an English major, a literature major in college, and I even thought about going on to graduate school and becoming a literary critic of some, of some kind. And so I still think a lot about the different, and you know, literary criticism, I'd say, is I think of it as kind of a branch of philosophy. And I thought a lot about the differences between philosophy and science and, and literature. It seems to me that literature is always starting by saying sort of, not this is how the world is, but what if, what if the world is this way? Let's think about the world in this way and sort of see where that takes us. Whereas science ultimately is after how the world is. It might, you know, use, it uses thought experiments. Of course, it's an imaginative enterprise, but science is trying to converge on the truth. The way you just put it was, you know, at some point you might read a paper and you go, oh my God, that's it. That's the answer. In science, there is this thing that we would call the answer, you know, the truth, the correct solution to a problem. That doesn't make any sense. In, in, in fiction, that's like a category error. Right. <laughs> and I, yeah. I would say in I would say in philosophy, it, philosophers don't like this. Most of them, I'd say philosophers, actually, I think of as fiction writers, they just don't realize it. Most of them, most of them are also in the what if uh, game. They think they're converging on an answer, but they're not. They're actually showing us that answer. No answer can possibly be satisfactory. So I guess the question I'm asking you is. Do you think it's possible that the scientific part of you that thinks that there is an answer to the mind-body problem could just be wrong and that this whole enterprise should be thought of as something more artistic, which is going after, which has an infinite number of possible answers? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'll beg off answering the very last one about whether or not there is a possible answer. I think probably that if there, if there isn't, there's some very good reason why a, a, a very simple example, right. Would be, or not, I guess not very simple, but, but a well-known example, right. Would be something like Gödel's incompleteness theorem where we, we have a very nice proof of it. It proves that something is impossible, but we have a very nice understanding of why it's impossible. Right. Um, and, you know, I think in a, maybe a worst case scenario for consciousness, my guess would be we end up maybe with something like that, which would be that, listen, a science of consciousness turns out to be impossible, but we kind of know why. And it's like this weird reason that people hadn't really thought of. Um, and, but, but you can kind of like map the boundaries, but you can't go to the space beyond the boundaries. So I'll just say that as maybe that is a possibility. 
but I want to address, I think, this really interesting point you, you, you brought up, right, which is the difference between literary thinking and scientific thinking, and scientific thinking is a sort of drive towards this sort of rationalistic truth. And you're absolutely right that when you're in the literary mode, the primary, if, 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 you, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right, and I'm not always doing it right, but if you're doing it right, you know, what you are is fundamentally an agnostic and you're an agnostic about everything. You're an agnostic whether or not there are good or bad people. You are agnostic about whatever character you're writing. Like, is this kind of like in good literature, there are no antagonists, right? They're just, that doesn't mean that people don't act like antagonists, right? That's, that's the secret. They, they might, but they, they aren't, not internally, right? Um, and they're always the protagonists of their story. And to me, you know, when I was writing this book, this book is not my attempt to kind of put together something that maybe should have been in a nonfiction book and put it out there as kind of like some sort of mask. To me, the writer in me wanted to write this book because the idea of people working on trying to figure out this problem struck me as so thematically deep and, and, and all and people's actions became imbued with a certain metaphysical potency. Uh, an example I'll give, although, of course, an unkind one uh, on, on one side of the party, is, is to Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which I read five times d- during the writing of this book. And um, unkind uh, to, to Melville, not, not to myself. Uh, and, you know, it, it, why, is, why is Moby Dick so, so good in certain scenes? And it's because of what they're doing. What they're doing is they're hunting a creature. But they're hunting a creature whose heart is the size of a car. And so everything about it is imbued with mythos. Uh, and it, it's, it's like this metaphysical thing to hunt the biggest creature to which you're like a gnat next to it. And that like soaks into everything. And what I was trying to do was kind of siphon off and mimic a little bit of Melville's magic to say that the, the act of pursuing this question is so crazy. And the things people do, right, they like open up the brains of monkeys and stick down huge telescopes and do all this stuff. Um, it is, is like metaphysical and deeply interesting from a purely literary perspective. Right. And, and so that was always my dominant mode when writing it and uh, was to try to not have it be that like the main character is always correct about everything, you know, or, or, or is kind of, you know, it, it, but, but just to have that more outside view uh, looking in and try to give it that sort of mes- metaphysical weight uh, th- that I think that only like a deep exploration of science as a human subject can can have. Yeah, um, you know, I I think you've answered um, my next question, which is how much you identify with the main character. The main character's name is is Kirk. Kirk. Or Kirk? Uh, either works Kirk Kirk if it's if you if it's someone realizing that it's short for Kierkegaard yeah that's what I, that's what I figured okay Kirk and um and so he's you know he's Ahab he's like after the white whale of uh solution to consciousness to the mind-body problem and um you know and sort of toward the end I don't want to give away too much but uh you know he's he's like sort of going nuts and he's going deeply into the problem and I loved some of his ruminations and, and, and obsessive riffs on the problem. And especially I, I love where I think he ends up, which is, which is he's, he's got this um, idea that all theories of consciousness are to some extent circular, 
they're begging the question. You actually use that phrase, begging the question. And, and this means in the real sense of begging the question as a, in a kind of circular uh, or tautological argument. And, um, and so he's sort of like despairing that there will be a, uh, a solution. And I apparently, and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's probably what Eric thinks. And it's funny he thinks that because, you know, he's like a tenure track professor in neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, great, great, great question. You know, um, so first to just address some of kind of Kirk's, so, so Kirk has a lot of ideas th throughout the book about this. And I think some are very interesting. I think some are maybe less so. Um, particularly, you know, I, I think he sketches out something kind of a little bit similar to what I was just talking about, where he has this idea of maybe, maybe I could somehow show formally that science itself is incomplete in kind of a similar way, maybe not using the exact same techniques. Um, he thinks that, hey, maybe consciousness is like an axiom to science and you can't prove axioms from within the system. So therefore, like, of course, you're, you're incredibly confused about how any of this could be operating because you're basically stuck within this formal system and trying to prove an axiom from within it. I've actually never really heard that view well articulated. Um, there's various stuff about cognitive closure that have, people have talked about, like McGinn and other people have talked about. Um, but most of that sort of cognitive closure is more like we're too dumb to understand it, not that there's some sort of in principle reason that is not that we're too dumb to understand it. And actually you could have a very good understanding of why you can't understand it. That's not just that your IQ is too low and that a super alien could understand it or something. Um, so I wanted to give him opinions of stuff that I felt was original. So there are, th I think maybe this is the first novel that I really know of where there's at least a couple original scientific hypotheses thrown out by various characters um, that some of which I think are, are, viable. Um, but, you know, again, when I'm thinking about that, I'm also thinking about Kirk's personality, right? And he, 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 he and I do have a lot of similarities, in, particularly in the sense of he's the main character, uh, and I'm a young man, and I drew from a lot of my own experiences to inform his experiences, because that's stuff that I understand and, and know well. There's also a lot of me and Carmen, um, who, in a sense, and Carmen, um, is uh, in a sense, the more natural protagonist of the book in that she's the one actually interested in solving this murder. Like most of the book is them kind of going around trying to solve this, this murder in like a classic murder mystery sense. They're not doing that good of a job of it because they're not exactly detectives and in the real world murders, clues don't just kind of like fall out. Um, but um, what I wanted from, from Kirk and the reason why he spent so much time thinking about this and this is, again, something stolen a bit from Moby Dick, which is that I wanted a propulsive force and a digressive force. And Carmen's kind of the pr propulsive force. She's like the natural protagonist for, for the novel, and you do spend some time in her perspective trying to come, come up with solutions for this murder mystery. And Kirk is, meanwhile, kind of just like there to tag along because he likes Carmen. And so he plays this very, he's the Ishmael to her Ahab in that. And then when it comes to consciousness, they kind of swap places. Um, and, you know, I think both, like, for example, yes, I, I also went to the University of Wisconsin to get my PhD, just like Kirk did, because I know Madison, so I can write about Madison, right? But Carmen went to Columbia, and I worked at Columbia, too, right? So, you know, parts of me end up in all the characters, and also big parts of me don't. Um, I think that in terms of being a scientist, I'm maybe actually a little bit closer to Carmen, who can 
play well with others. She's a bit of a skeptic. She, she's a very good scientist. I think actually she's, she's probably the best scientist in the book in, in terms of the classic definition. Um, Kirk is a bit more unstable. And one of the reasons why is again, you need that Captain Ahab force. You need that romanticism to combat the scientism that's natural because science holds such value for us and we place such faith in it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but it's so naturally corrosive. There's a good reason novelists don't write about it because the moment that science comes into the, into the room, it's this huge bully and it knocks over everybody else. And, you know, it's, it's like this big capital T truth and you can't really criticize it. And so on, or you can criticize it, but in some like crappy, uninteresting postmodern way, right. Um, versus having, you know, getting the right balance of romanticism to science was like getting the right mix of salt to sugar while you're baking. And so Kirk had to be this monomaniacal character just to provide this like combating force where he's more like an 18th century protagonist than a contemporary protagonist. That that's, that's nice. I can, I can, um, I can see, I can see how you set them up now uh, to have these sort of, um, this tension in these, in these two points of view. Let me tell you, let me um, throw something else at you. You know, I, I, as you know, I've got very strong ideas about the limits of science. And, and um, when it comes to the mind body problem. So I, I wrote a book called mind body problems. It came out about three years ago and I tried to work through some of these ideas in that book and, you know, mind body problems with the S on the end was, um, was sort of pointing at this view that I'm, I'm going to try to explain to you. My idea is, is that um, the mind body problem is really complicated. It also includes free will, it includes the meaning of life. It includes morality. I've got a really expansive uh, view of it that goes back in part to Schopenhauer who called the mind body problem, the world, not sort of this, this thing that, all questions eventually end up uh, converging on. And the way you can sum up the mind-body problem is with the question, what are we? What are we really? Well, you know, what am I? I can ask this about myself, but what also does it mean to be human? And this is a question that has created a lot of history. You can see it, it as kind of like the engine of history in a way. We're, we're trying to figure out what are we? What should we be? It's also got that that um, moral dimension, and you know, religion is an answer to that. Um, philosophy has given us a lot of answers. Science has given us a lot of answers. You know, from everything, including you know, bad answers. Like I would say, Marxism, the way it worked out, ended up being a bad answer. Eugenics and social Darwinism, of course, as well as Christianity and Islam, and all these answers out there. Materialism and panpsychism, and and um, when humans think they know the answer to the mind-body problem, they start acting like assholes. They become fanatics. They, you know, and I under—I certainly understand it. I—I'm—I've been wondering what the hell I am since I became sentient when I was a little kid, and I—I'd like to. Part of me really wants to know the answer to that question. I want to have some kind of revelation that makes everything clear, makes me know what to do with my life. Now I've accepted that there. Not only that there isn't an answer, but there should not be an answer. And we should, we should reject the idea that there isn't an answer 
so we avoid this problem of certainty and fanaticism, and so that our future becomes more open-ended and and uh, and creative. The, the way I look at it is, we don't even know what right language to use when we're talking about the mind-body problem. Should it be physics, neuroscience, evolutionary, bio, you know, economics, all of the above, none of the above, something else that we haven't even thought of yet? Um, and to the idea that we might suddenly decide, oh, okay, this is the answer. It's, you know, psychoanalysis or behaviorism or integrated information theory. That, like, limits us. It closes us off to this wonderful world of endless possibilities. That's, I just wanted to lay that yeah, up. No, that, I, I, one reason I wrote the book I mean, and, and some, or at least a, a theme of the book is that, you know, we, we're currently in a time, maybe the last time that we don't know exactly what we are. And there can be both a huge amount of beauty in that, in that maybe what we are is, is really beautiful. Um, actually, I think of all the characters in the book, Carmen, I, I mean, I just said she's the best scientist. I also think she's probably the most religious character, naturally religious um, I think she, she, she wants to believe in, in some sort of soul of, of some kind, almost certainly not like an organized religious way. But, um, and, and so she has these kind of beautiful thoughts. She's got a couple of descriptions of maybe consciousness is like, like a radio to God, right? Like, like maybe it's constantly just sending up our consciousness. Um, and, and then other characters have um, some really dark thoughts about what consciousness might end up you know there's there's a scene in the book where a, a monkey um basically self-lobotomizes and one of the characters is thinking about you know what's the you know solution to fermi's paradox and maybe the solution is that the ultimate secret of consciousness is some sort of horrific illuminative materialism where it turns out you really aren't conscious and as jerry fodor said you know if it's if it's literally true that my itching doesn't cause my scratching and my wanting a drink doesn't cause me sipping the drink. Uh, if that's literally true, then everything I believe is false, and it's the end of the world. And maybe every civilization that figures out what it is rips itself apart in reactionary self-lobotomization. And that, I'm not saying that's true. What I'm saying is there are these, we're, we're in this open period where there are these different perspectives, and that's why I think that there's almost like this religious element to the novel and some characters' thoughts, and almost like this Lovecraftian horror element to it as well. I mean, as they get closer to the problem of consciousness, the world around them gets weirder and weirder, and strange events start occurring, and there's almost like magical realism going on, you know, within it, almost like something is trying to get through from some sort of other side, uh, like some sort of elder god, almost, is how I was thinking about it. And that is, I think, true. Like, I, I think I, I'm not so much at the point of agnosticism yet, so much as I am of, I don't know what the possibility will be. And I wanted to kind of capture the emotional range of what it could be. Yeah, I guess I can see how it might be hard for a scientist to accept the view that I'm trying to, you know, put out there. It's not Mysterianism. Exactly. So Mysterianism, the term was coined by Owen Flanagan, 
um, referencing, I think he was respond, he was inspired by the old sixties rock group question mark and the Mysterians. It's, 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 uh, but he applies it to people like Colin McGinn who say that consciousness just isn't solvable. And, um, and I don't think conscious, I don't think it's solvable in, in the sense of there will be an answer. Like, Photosynthesis, I think, was a solvable problem. We know how photosynthesis works, right? We've got a, a really good answer to that puzzle. Um, consciousness, I don't think, ever will have a solution, but I think it, it has infinite solutions, um, including mystical and spiritual and religious solutions, as well as solutions coming from all these different fields of science and coming from uh, mathematics and solutions that involve different concepts of morality. And, um, and I guess now I, I think the more, the better, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, I think all that diversity reflects the extraordinary diversity and creativity um, and open-endedness of, you know, the, the human adventure. Uh, so it's not Mysterianism. It's something I would hope is more positive than that. But it still might be hard for a scientist to accept it's sort of the premise of science is that you pick a problem that ultimately will have a solution, even if you don't find it yourself. Yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just going to say that's 100% correct, but I would say, like, you know, I completely agree, but I will say that a part of me, in a sense, agrees, right? And you can see that within within the revelations itself. For example, you know, in the murder mystery aspect of it, it becomes clear, you know, in a normal murder mystery book, right, there's like a very obvious murder, and then the characters kind of investigate, and they get clues, and everything kind of begins to work out, and then you arrive at your one and final deductive answer, and there's some kind of brilliant moment of deduction, right, where Sherlock Holmes walks you through about why that happens. And actually, I have a essay that just went up about how detective stories were invented by Voltaire. And it was also at the exact time that people were trying to make scientists a unique uh, intellectual part of the world. So the, the detective and the scientist come into being both from the enlightenment. They're both enlightenment figures, right? They're, they're almost the same figure. But when they go to do this in the book, it doesn't really work out in that sort of easy murder mystery way, right? It's like they, they find something, but then things get weird again. Or maybe they're, in, in fact, it's even considered, you know, strongly it seems possible for a while that there wasn't even a murder. Like it was an accident and there's just nothing here. And so they're like running around New York trying to solve a problem that doesn't actually, you don't even really need to solve it, right? Um, and so, so, you know, in, in that sense, you know, the, the writer aspect of me agrees and I want that option in there. I want that as a viable, as a viable viewpoint. Yeah. I, I thought that worked really well. I didn't want to talk too much about that because I wasn't sure if I would be sort of, well, we don't have to talk about the very ending, you know, or anything like that, but you yeah. know, there is a, there is a murder mystery and they do investigate it and things don't go, you know, as, as kind of they normally would. Everything's a bit kind of weirder you know and you know this it's a it's a purposefully the, the word frustrating is a is a very bad term because it implies the reader will be frustrated right but in terms of the archetypal plots you know a big gold mine was to kind of frustrate them in the sense of you know 
there's a romance, but it's not the same. It's not like, you know, there's, there's a triad and people are trying to resolve which one to marry, you know, or the, the marriage plot doesn't really crop up in the traditional sense. It actually mirrors what happened with Kierkegaard and Regina Olsen, but that's a different thing. Uh, but same with the murder mystery, right? It's like, there's a murder mystery, but it's not going to present itself in the way that maybe it would traditionally be. So anyways, that was really important to me was to provide, um, to find the balance of, it should be similar enough that people want to keep reading because there's a reason why murder mysteries occupy entire sections of bookstores, right? Like they work. I love murder mysteries. Like they work so well. Right. But at the same time, if you just do the same thing, you know, you, you end up with something that's relatively uninteresting. It would be as uninteresting as saying, this is basically a nonfiction book that I've disguised. And I end with my, here's my theory, right? It would be the same thing, right? It's like you, you pull the mask off of Scooby-Doo and so on. And instead, I think you get a much more complex uh, kind of scenario. But again, without giving away the actual ending. Yeah, I, uh, I thought you, you sort of philosophically complicated the murder mystery part of it in a way that resonated with the quest for a solution to consciousness very effectively. And that's why I guess I, I've been wondering ever since I read the book where you are personally, because <laughs> it seems to me that your, your fictional narrative is quite subversive for the whole scientific and philosophical enterprise of trying to understand what the hell we are trying to understand consciousness, trying to solve the mind body problem. Um, Yeah, I I agree, but I don't, again, the agnosticism is key. I want young people to read this book and about it, right? Like I do think that the, that there is something like really interesting here and, you know, the characters are kind of, uh, romantic and smoking cigarettes in New York while talking about like the biggest subjects in the universe. But at the same time, have that maybe older, maybe, maybe like an older perspective or a more adult perspective, um, like a wisdom of age perspective. That's like, you know, yes, but that's also the energy of youth. Right. So, uh, you know, may, maybe in the end I can't have my cake and eat it in every way I possibly want to. Uh, but you know, I think the chromatic nature of this novel was my attempt to do that. <laughs> So uh, yeah, we're so we're we're pretty much um, out of time. I just wanted to say that I, I think one sign of the success of your book would be, and I, and I I would expect that it would do this, would be that it would inspire some young readers to want to go into neuroscience or philosophy and st- and spend their lives trying to solve the mind body problem, or it might inspire some young people to want to take up uh, fiction or philosophy. I could, I, I could see, I could see young readers going in lots of different directions reading this book. And I think that's, that's, um, that's a good thing. It, that uh, is a testament to the the skill with which it's written. Yeah, that, that makes me incredibly happy. That's an honor to hear. Yeah. That would also be my, my hope. All right, Eric. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and for uh, being allowing me to, you know, throw all my obsessions at you. I really uh, appreciate it. And congratulations. The book is really, it's, it's a wonderful read. And then it's also just this immensely stimulating um, intellectual feast as well.
So thank you so much. It really means a lot to hear that coming from you because I, I know you're, you're a writer as well. And you, you know, you've been kind of watching this space for, for a long time now. So much appreciated. All right. Um, okay. So I'm going to, let's see, I'll start, uh,